From KOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Eric Larson, international best-selling author of works like The Devil in the White City and No One Goes Alone. Uh, what I find time and again is that readers were drawn by the idea of this being a book about a serial killer. Um, I don't know what that says about us, but they were drawn to this idea of, of the book being about a serial killer. But the thing that held them and they came away really liking was the story of the fair. So I found that I found that a, a, a very interesting and also also a victory for good versus evil. Larson discusses his fascination with using history to process his anxieties, how ambition can lead to good and evil outcomes, and why he wrote a fictional ghost story after decades of writing nonfiction. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Eric Larson, international best-selling author of works like The Devil in the White City, The Splendid and the Vile, and In the Garden of Beasts. His latest work is an audible, original, fictional ghost story called No One Goes Alone. Until his latest work, his books are all historical nonfiction, heavily researched and often focused on the duality of ambition, that our reach can both make so much progress, but also accomplish so much evil. We talk about the way he sees human nature from his writing and what it is that pushed him to switch gears for his latest book and try fiction. I was originally scheduled to moderate a live conversation with Eric Larson in the Council Bluffs Public Library earlier this year, which ultimately did not work out, and that's why we invited him on the show today. Here is our conversation. About 20 years ago, you wrote in the note at the end of The Devil in the White City, quote, the thing that entranced me about Chicago in the Gilded Age was the city's willingness to take on the impossible in the name of civic honor, a concept so removed from the modern psyche that two wise readers of early drafts of the book wondered why Chicago was so avid to win the World's Fair in the first place. The juxtaposition of pride and unfathomed evil struck me as offering powerful insights into the nature of men and their ambitions. There's a lot to be said about ambition, pride, and unfathomed evil in the years since you wrote The Devil in the White City. Has whenever your sense of civic honor, whatever that was in the early aughts, has that changed in the ensuing decades as both you've aged and America's gotten, let's say, stranger? Well, first of all, thank you for reminding me that I wrote that 20 years ago. <laughs> published it 20 years ago. I, it's, it's hard to believe. Has my sense of, of it changed? You know, evil is evil. Um, civic goodwill is civic goodwill. I think I, I stand by what I said 20 years ago, that act of pure civic goodwill is very unlikely to happen these days. Uh, but as to whether, um, how would you phrase it, uh, whether whether uh, things have gotten um, uh, worse, would you say, uh, since then? I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, they're worse compared to what? You know, I mean, I was watching the January 6th hearings this morning and I was struck by, look, you know, this is going on in a, in a country that by all counts has everything, um, you know, together that it ever had, right? Um, and yet we allow things like January, not January 6th, but we allow the, the forces that created January 6th to, to unfold. It's like, you know, we need to wake up to that stuff. But if you think about today being any different than in the past, I mean, World War II was was uh, about as as much of an atrocity as anybody could even imagine today, and you know at the time of World War II, people who were going through it here here in America, they led perfectly normal lives you know, with this overlay of of intense stress and anxiety about their their sons and daughters who who were abroad fighting, but they also went about their lives. This is the thing that we often forget. Right now, we you know you talk about our, you know how bad are things? Are things really bad right now? And, you know, it depends on, on which button you want to press. Yeah, you know, inflation, the, the war in Ukraine and so forth. On the other hand, I got up this morning and I had a great breakfast. I mean, you know, life goes on. There, there, there's, there's an underlayment of normalcy in every era. And you can look for as much bad as you want and you will find it. Well, your, your books often have sort of like two poles. There's it might be oversimplifying to say good and evil, but you do come up against some fairly evil characters, people, movements, right? So there's Holmes, there's uh, the Third Reich uh, in the Garden of Beasts. And so I wonder, I mean, do, did you find that writing these books where you often have sort of like an ambitious person who's <clears throat> maybe working from a sense of technological innovation, maybe it is civic responsibility, uh, whatever it is, there's usually sort of the good side of ambition and the dark side of ambition. Did you find that the that writing these books gave you an insight into why evil can be as ambitious and successful as it often has been in history? 
It's such an interesting question because, you know, ambition, and part of the thing that appealed to me about uh, the devil in the white city was, you know, as, as I described it, and I think I may even have described it in my, my author's note. I can't remember 20 years ago. Thank you. <laughs> but um, I, I, is that, you know, both Daniel Burnham, the director of the World's Fair, and Holmes, you know, this sociopathic killer at the same time, same place, you know, they were both in their way heroic. Uh, that is to say, um, Holmes was heroically bad. Burnham was heroically good, both flip sides of the same sort of core um, thing you, you refer to, we refer to as ambition, which which is really a, really a very potent source of energy, um, however you want to apply it. If you want to apply it for good, very potent. If you want to apply it for bad, unfortunately, it's also very, very potent. It's interesting. Like, what, what is it that makes ambition uh, successful in general? Is it is it just that will to create something, that will to accomplish, and then just whatever your motivation is happens to decide if that's for good or bad? Boy, ambition. You know, I, I, like I said, I think I think if you distill ambition to it to its essential core, it is maybe a, a better way to describe it is simply a way of channeling energy. You know, I, when you think about the, the good things that, that, well, you know, again, we talk about good and evil, but you think about the good things that happened, like the World's Fair of 1893 um, uh, and, and, and the ambition that, that, that made that happen. You know, it, it took ambition to overcome all the incredible obstacles to that fair. I mean, you know, it, it is a nothing short of a miracle that that fair got built in the short time that it did. Uh, and that took that took um, uh, ambition. Um, it also took vision. I think often the two go hand in hand. You can you can have an idea, but if you don't have the ambition to carry it out, that idea is going to be stillborn. But if you have an idea or if you have a vision and you've got the ambition to try to make that thing work, well, then the, the odds are much improved that it, that, it, that it will work. Now, in the case of the World's Fair of 1893, I would say the odds were completely stacked against it, which is part of the appeal for me. I mean, there, the juxtaposition of good and evil was what actually made me do the book. I mean, I knew about the World's Fair, and I knew about uh, the killer. Um, neither alone appealed to me as the source of a potential book. But it was when I realized that these things occurred at the same time, same place, literally, same time, same place, that 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 it really was a story of of of, uh, of of good and evil, of darkness and light, and and you know an odd one because in fact the two stories don't really touch except in one small place. Um, but um, I, I just I, I'm not sure what insights I got out of that, but I just loved the idea of these two things, these two acts of of, of heroism, if you will, dark heroism and, and light heroism, were taking place side by side. I found that fascinating. I would throw out a footnote, by the way, that while I found it fascinating on the eve of publication of that book, and this is the absolute truth, and my wife will confirm it, because the book had that dual narrative and because the things never really touched except in that one small point, I was pretty convinced that my career was over. I mean, I, I thought that's it. You know, this is just this is going to crash and burn. And I was uh, very pleased to find that it did not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think a lot of people also are very drawn to that dark heroism, if we want to call it that. Maybe people who wouldn't want to read a book about the fair, uh, this sort of like history book about civic yeah. honor, civic responsibility, they will read a book about a serial killer. Actually, you know what? You know what I found? In this case, the serial killer was the was the French fries. You know, the, the theory that you go, you know, you, you buy the, the, the higher margin McDonald's um, food because you're drawn in by the French fries. As it proved to be the case, in, in fact, uh, what I find time and again is that readers were drawn by the idea of this being a book about a serial killer. Um, I don't know what that says about us all, but they were drawn to this idea of, of the book being about a serial killer. But the thing that held them and they came away really liking was the story of the fair. So I found that I found that a, a, a very interesting and also also a victory for good versus evil. That's interesting. And then, I mean, it seems like you've tried to sort of replicate that or find different facets of maybe that same sort of trick, right? Like in Thunderstruck, where you also have uh, a very bad person. You've got Crippen, then you've got Marconi revolutionizing communication in the 20th century. Well, well, now, well now, so now here, here's the thing about that, that Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck followed um, Devil in the White City. And, you know, I had vowed after Devil in the White City, I vowed I am never doing another dual narrative. The reason being that they're hard. It's right. You, you have to write basically two books, not one. Right. And it was really complicated. It took a lot out of me. And I just vowed I was never going to do that again. 
then suddenly I, I stumbled. It, I, there was absolutely no agenda to do a, a second dual narrative. I stumbled on this idea, a long story, um, uh, um, because from my childhood, believe it or not, I knew the story of Crippen because my mother was a was a, a, a sometime writer of, of, of mystery short stories, and she was totally into it. And something happened involving the case when I was a kid, and she told me all about it, all about the Crippen murders, murder. Um, uh, and then suddenly in Seattle, I, I'm going to tell the story because you know I, I was crossing a one of my favorite bridges in Seattle when I got cut off by another driver who was on his cell phone. Then I looked over and I saw a cell phone tower and I thought to myself, wait a minute, I wonder if there's anything in wireless for a book. Went back to my office right away, fired up Google, uh, found a, a timeline on the Marconi, the current Marconi company's website. And there in this timeline was a reference to Crippen, this killer from my childhood. And it was just like, it was just like this weird, magical moment. And I thought, okay, I'm going to look into this. I got to find out how these two careers match. Now, fast forward, do the book. You know, you talk about Crippen being this, this, this sort of dark, evil character in Marconi, this, you know, the inventor of, 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 of wireless and so forth. But what was really weird about the way that book turned out, I, I feel that Crippen turned out to be a much more sympathetic character than Marconi. I mean, that, maybe that's just me, but I've also heard that from, from, from various readers. So I find that fascinating. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with author Eric Larson about history, ambition, progress, and writing. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what issue is on your mind in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, and we may play it on an upcoming show. So it seems like in, in The Devil in the White City, there was maybe the absolutes that were kind of interesting, whereas in Thunderstruck was the appeal then you could do a double narrative, but one that didn't have this absolute evil and one where the, the gray areas could, in fact, be what people take away as opposed to the black and white? Yeah, yeah. I mean, much more nuance, in, frankly, I, I think, in, in, in Thunderstruck, as well as bringing to light um, two, two very different careers, if you will. Um, and two very, very interesting careers um, uh, and talk about ambition. I mean, I mean, you know, Mar Marconi was had, was burning ether. You know, I mean, how on earth did he come up with this idea and how on earth did he execute it? Um, it is one of the sort of amazing things about the, the story. But but he was he was not a sympathetic, sympathetic character. And Crippen really, really kind of was. And so I, I, I love nuance. But what but. And, you know, the, the real impetus, though, for the story, um, often, often it works this way. Often there is, there, there is one aspect that just really, really drives it for me. And that was this transoceanic chase. Um, uh, once uh, once uh, Crippen tried to flee uh, Britain uh, and was being tracked thanks to, thanks to wireless, uh, but he had no idea he was being tracked. He had no idea he was being followed by a Scotland Yard, uh, a Scotland Yard detective, and the whole world was following this this chase, and and only the target didn't know. And I found that just absolutely fascinating. And 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 you know, the last hundred pages, that's why I wrote the book. Do you see? in the sense that your books themselves are very ambitious, that to make two dissonant stories work in general can be kind of this big ambition. I mean, do you find that you relate to the ambition of your characters and them often doing these things that are sort of like, you know, paradigm shifting or just sort of seemingly <laughs> impossible? Are, are you are you present in, the, in them, even though it's history? No, my writing life is colored entirely by regret. Why, why, did, why did I take on this idea? Why did I get into this thing? Because you know, it is always the case that something you take on um, becomes a much grander project in terms of in terms of the kind of research that's required, the travel, the uh, and the, the ultimate writing challenge than you ever imagine going into it. And I think that's actually that's probably a, a, a good thing. You know, like I say, you know, uh, fools rush in where angels don't dare tread or whatever the term is. When I'm getting into these books, I mean, I, I really don't know what I'm getting into. It's not like a question of, OK, my ambition is just as strong as Burnham's. I'm going to tell this dual story and I'm going to really, really kick this one out of the park. It's more like, oh, my God, what did I take on? And, and I got to get this thing done in a year. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
Well, so I, I wonder, uh, as far as your style of writing, it sounds like yeah. you, you've set up kind of strict rules for yourself, and maybe it's easier to work within that framework, as I understand you've done for a lot of your books, which is, for example, there are strict rules about what you can and can't dramatize, like dialogue. You, you know, well, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, let's be very careful there in terms of dramatize. I mean, there, there – my authors and I always say that you know anything between quotes is from some actual living document, and that's to that's to make clear that there is no made up dialogue in in in, in my books. But it's also the case that I, I do not I, I I quarrel with the term dramatize. I don't I don't dramatize or anything or take liberties. Um, part of the challenge with narrative history is you have to find the material. You have to have it in order to write it in in a, in as a compelling narr- narrative. You know, what I do is I adapt fictional technique, um, not fiction, but fictional technique to tell the nonfiction story. Um, and I make it very clear that uh, in, in, in the telling of that story, um, it's all it's all real, as real as as it can get based on, you know, the, the records in the archives and so forth. And I document that, of course, in my in my my footnotes. But, um, yeah, I've gotten surprisingly I, I, not surprisingly, but I've, if anything, I've gotten more and more rigorous over the years, just as as our culture has sort of descended into this kind of weird contradictory phenomenon of on the one hand it's a gotcha culture where you know you you get caught out in errors and everybody goes wild uh and on the other hand people are willing to accept completely bogus theories of things without without giving it any sort of any sort of profound examination it's so strange well so so it kind of comes out of a sense of there's a credibility right um but then also i mean there's uh, one of the things we a problem we have in our cultural understanding of history a lot of the time is tone uh, is either sort of sanitized in certain books or tone is inferred to be editorializing on its own. So, I mean, right. like, how do you land on the style of discipline tone that became sort of your signature style? You know, I'm, I'm very um, um, well, first of all, like I say, I'm, I'm very, very much um, into nuance. Um, I don't believe in heroes. I I, I, I I don't believe in villains, except maybe Hitler. Um, I, I, I think that I think that when you explore a life, or, or, or uh, in the end, that's what I end up doing with my my key characters, is that you always find nuance, you always find good things and bad things, and 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 I have disciplined myself to just make it to be absolutely certain that I, I don't take sides. I don't take sides. I don't I don't apply to the past the judgments that we have developed today about that past. Um, uh, so, um, and if you, if you, if you follow that lodestar, um, you can avoid a lot of the pitfalls. You know, sometimes I read narrative history and, and, you know, um, people are, uh, the writer is jumping up and down, making it clear how awful this event in the past was. Right. Um, if you do that properly, if you tell the story, um, if you show um, the story, I hate to hate to bring out that old chestnut, but showing is better than telling. But if you tell the story properly um, uh, with enough uh, vivid, uh, vivid detail, um, you don't need to jump up and down and, 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 and hammer readers over the head with some some moral message. Um, the story um, unfolds as it unfolds, and you know you either get it or you don't. And you've said that uh, it's interesting. I think in terms of your approach as far as subjects go. So I know that you've said that the splendid and the vile grew out of an epiphany about life in New York during nine eleven, as well as some general anxieties you have about parenthood and the lives your daughters yeah. lead or led will lead. So I mean, it's interesting that you choose to process these feelings in that case through writing about Winston Churchill. Uh, but just kind of in a, in a broader sense, why is it that history is a natural fit for you to process anxieties about the present? Well, you know, you know, if my daughters were here, they would be just quietly uh, laughing their their butts off uh, at that question because I am. I, they know me to be the king of anxiety, um, and 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 you know, and I, I accept that mantle. I you know, I I I think part of it stems from the fact that I was a um, my first iteration. Um, I spent uh, much of my time covering the cops in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and, you know, on, on a Saturday night, you know, um, I, I would have to call the parents of some 
a child who had been killed in a car crash. I mean, this is sort of, you know, that was like 25% of what I ended up having to do on, on my Saturday nights. It's not exactly a, you know, a scintillating, scintillating way to spend a weekend. But, you know, it did, it sort of imprint on me a sense of the, 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 the fragility of, of life. And, and I suppose when, with these books, I, I am trying to sort of, um, maybe exorcise the, those demons. I mean, I, I never really thought about it that way until now. But, but you know, maybe that's really what it comes down to. Is 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 you know, by maybe maybe what I'm doing is by acting out in my 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 books by acting out these absolute, in, in some cases, these absolute nightmares. I'm 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 somehow somehow exorcising that 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 demon um it does not however um stop me from on a regular basis sending my kids um what we what i refer to as dad alerts um which is like on a particularly windy day here in new york i'll say mind be, be mindful it's very windy don't go in the bar in the park you know <laughs> or it's super hot hydrate so anyway um so, but it could be. It could be that the, that these books really do help me sort of exorcise those those demons. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. As a, there's a maybe therapeutic way to channel your anxiety into something productive. Uh, but I mean, it, right. I, I said instead of just becoming like a Roz Chas character and never leaving my home. <laughs> Well, and the, the the choice of stories are interesting too, because uh, kind of like we were saying before, I mean, it's it's not so much that you're writing about yourself because you're writing history with a strict discipline. It's not a way to put yourself into history necessarily. But I mean, to some extent, you must have related to Churchill, what he was going through, and that brings you to that subject matter as the place to channel your anxieties, right? Well, you know, it, 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 the, the the Churchill book, The Splendor and the Vile, is is actually an ex- excellent example of how. How my how my 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 anxieties my life sort of shaped the narrative, um, uh, and, and that is one of the key characters in that book is um, Churchill's youngest living daughter, Mary Churchill, whose diary I had the good luck um, uh, to be given access to, and and you know I, I found myself time and again thinking to myself, how on earth did the Churchills do this? how you know with bombs raining down and you know the, the very real threat for a time of of a direct invasion by germany across the channel how on earth did the churchills deal with with being parents and one of my favorite moments was was uh, uh or, or at least thread was 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 mary churchill's um um uh, sorrow at being being farmed out to the prime ministerial country estate checkers for her own safety she wanted to be back in london she wanted to be taking part in the war but her parents would not let her and i thought boy you know that was just such a lovely thing because you know it just speaks to the universal of parenthood so so you know that that was a very clear example of just how how my own life can kind of shape um shape the, the the story that I'm telling. It's not like I'm I'm altering history. I'm just choosing threads from history to bring to light that that maybe another writer with a different different history, different background might not have chosen. I love at the end of the Splendid in the Vial in the acknowledgments where you bring up Kurt Vonnegut's theory on the shape of stories. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he's got this lecture, which I think is also in his book, Man Without a Country, where he says there's a few basic story structures that all cultures seem to adhere to. Uh, there's one, which is man in a hole, which he says doesn't have to be about a man or a hole, but you said this was the right one for Churchill, where the structure yep. is man falls into a hole, gets out again. Um, yep. Now, Vonnegut ultimately concludes in that lecture that he finds the most resonant story structure to be one that he draws as a straight line which is one where people can't tell what's good, what's bad, what's going to happen, what has meaning, if anything, does. So I thought it's interesting because he says Hamlet's the quintessential example of this. You're looking at that lecture, and I think most people in that, if you buy into Vonnegut, are sort of like, all right, I guess the correct answer is the Hamlet one, right? That's got to be the way you should tell stories. Whereas you say, no, 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 Man in the Hole's the right one for this particular one. So, Well, well, well you know, when he's talking about the straight line, I mean, he, I, 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 he's talking about life as lived. I mean, it's, it, I, frankly, it's like my epigram in, in Splendid and the Vile, Churchill saying that, you know, if we knew what was coming, it'd be so, so much harder to, to get through life. Um, uh, so, but the the you know as a writer, um, uh, uh, I know what's going to happen. 
fortune, and I know what's good fortune and bad fortune. You know, those are the, uh, those, that's the, the 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 one of the axes of this this graph of his. Um, and so, uh, because I am the puppeteer, and I know what's good and bad, I know where to put it on this this graph, and I come up with you know the man in the hole or. You know, I, I came up with uh, various uh, structures that defy description, but the most powerful thing for me about Vonnegut, the Vonnegut curve, as he called it, is that it does, in fact, help you think about the elements of your story, of the story you're trying to tell, and how they fit into that continuum of good fortune and bad fortune. I found it, I found it very effective, and then and the Churchill story is definitely a man in a hole. Yeah, so the man in the hole uh, is also, it's a story we like, right? I mean, we are kind of drawn. We want to see the person who we like get out of the hole again. So, I mean, just on a, on a level of being able to sell, I imagine that's kind of a useful story. Well, well, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, more than a useful story, it's a compelling story. You, you know, I mean, you, you, if he falls in the hole and, and, and you know, starves to death there because nobody's feeding him, I mean, that's, that doesn't make a good story. Um, uh, but, but if he falls into this hole um, and, and, and fights his way out of it as he, as he did, um, uh, that is a very, it's a very powerful, um, uh, energizing narrative. There's nothing static at all about it. And so that's why, that's why, to me, it's very compelling. I'm talking with Eric Larson, author of The Devil in the White City and the new Audible original, No One Goes Alone. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. We have an exciting announcement here at Riverside Chats, which is that we will be doing a live recording of an upcoming episode of this show at Benston Theater on September 24th, where you can see me on stage in conversation with the man himself from Mannheim Steamroller, Chip Davis. We'll be talking about his subversive approach to the music industry, the creation of Mannheim Steamroller, and how he's helped build spaces like Benson Theater for Omaha culture to flourish. Following the conversation, there will be an opportunity for audience participation and questions. I don't know, maybe we will like... Mr. Chip Davis himself, sing some Christmas songs, but make them really loud and intense. I don't know what's going to happen. It has to happen live, and hopefully you'll be there with us. Check for tickets at bensontheater.org. An evening with Chip Davis, our first live recorded Riverside Chats since the show premiered on public radio. See you September 24th. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero. In which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Make sure to check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, please leave us a review. I'm talking today with Eric Larson, author of best-selling historical nonfiction like The Devil and the White City, The Splendid and the Vile, and In the Garden of Beasts. We're talking about how he uses history to process anxieties about the present, to understand human nature better, and also we're talking about his latest turn, which is a fictional ghost story called No One Goes Alone, available only on Audible. Here's the rest of our conversation. A lot of your work is centered around the turn of the century, where industrialization is starting to shape the world we know today, which looks very, very different from the world that came before it. It seems like this current 21st century, Don, is also bringing a lot of massive changes. Do you see, I mean, are we going through similar levels of change in, say, the 21st century as opposed to, the, the, you know, the 20th? Or is, like, is, it, is this the kind of thing people will look back at this kind of huge turning moment the way that you've done with, uh, with your work? Well, you know, you know I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. <clears throat> I don't think so. I think that, well, 
The thing that appeals to me about the turn of the 20th century, that is, you know, from the 19th to the to the 20th, um, is that um, it, it was a time, we can come back to ambition, it was a time of, of boundless ambition, boundless hubris. That there was this idea in America in particular, America is still quite young at that point, there was this idea that we could do whatever we wanted. And, and when you have that kind of, that kind of environment where you think you can do anything you want, I mean, you know, the Panama Canal, you know, build the empires to build a World's Fair of 1893. Um, when, you, when you think you can do anything you want, um, that's territory for really great stories because hubris um, often breeds tragedy, you know, and, 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 and you know, tragedy, it, it, it makes, frankly, for, for, for great stories. So, so that's what marked for me the, the change from the 19th to the 20th century. The change from the 20th to the 21st is much more, it, I, I would argue that it's, it's less accessible to the lay person. Changing from the 19th to the 20th century, you know, thousands of newspapers in America, you know, reporting on these big things that were happening, the, the, the biggest new locomotive, the biggest ship, the fastest crossing of things that were accessible in the sense that they, they, they were visual. You know, you could, you could go down to New York Harbor and see the Lusitania at its moorage. You could see the Titanic at, at its moorage in, 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 in Liverpool. Changing from the, the, the 20th to the 21st century, everything's sort of micro. You know, you've got, it, it's digital. You know, you've got silicon chips and small computers. You know, there will, case in point, there will never be another world's fair that's my prediction there will never be let me let me rephrase it there will never be another successful world's fair because the 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 technical advances the creative advances um are 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 sort of are sort of uh in 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 the the the, the micro sphere they're not accessible to the rest of us i mean even scientific writing this is one thing one of my pet peeves my wife is a is a physician and Actually, it was a retired academic physician, um, and and I would occasionally try to read some of the academic papers that she would she would bring back, and 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 you know, in un, absolutely unreadable, absolutely unreadable by by a layman, even a reasonably well versed technically lay person like myself, versus turn of the nineteenth to the twentieth century scientific papers. I mean, like William James writing about writing about psychology. Some of this stuff was great literature. Um, you know, scientists writing about what they did in a way that was meant to draw in the lay person, you know, very powerful. So that's a that's kind of a long spiel to say that, you know, I, 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 I think the 19th and 20th century transition was was a was really, really quite unique in, in the history of, of, of mankind. So it sounds like you would not consider then writing something that's a contemporary or even mostly contemporary novel or, a, you know, Never. work of history. <laughs> Never said that. I never said that, but you know, never, never say never again. But you know, the thing, the thing about contemporary history, you know, I am, I am, uh, uh, I, I suppose by training, I'm, I'm, I'm more journalist than than historian. Well, of course, I did study history in college and and historiography and and and, and so forth. But but you know, my my training in terms of writing and, and research was really really mostly journalism, especially when I, I worked at the Wall Street Journal, where when I was there, I had the luxury of spending tons of time on relatively small stories. Um, uh, and, and, and so, so it, 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 I don't know what I, I don't know what the point I'm trying to make there, but, <laughs> but, but, but coming at, coming at stories from a, from a, uh, a journalistic perspective, um, you know, it, it 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 just it just drives me crazy that 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 the, the the things are now so inaccessible to to people, so inaccessible in terms of in terms of you know the nature of technology. I mean, my God, cryptocurrency. Do you understand what that is? Oh no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So you, so what you asked me about? Let, let's just rewind the tape to start with this. You asked me about doing contemporary contemporary books and so and, and so the, the, the reason journalism is is relevant um is that i i frankly i frankly burned out 
on 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 talking to to interviewing living people. You know, I don't need I don't need the flack after a story that would sometimes happen after a story ran. You know, I I, I love dealing with dead people. Sure. I mean, it's, it, it, dead people are a lot easier to deal with than living people with lawyers. <laughs> well, it's interesting that as far as your most recent work goes, because it is a departure, but it does deal with a lot of dead people who did exist and had writing that you could parse through. And I imagine do kind of a similar level of research just to sort of a different end. Uh, so your latest work is a fictional ghost story called No One Goes Alone. Yeah. Yeah. which is only an audio book. So there's a couple la- layers of departure there. Um, as far as getting to that, uh, to the point where you wanted to write something like that, I mean, I, I imagine for someone who's as disciplined as you are, it's maybe liberating to free yourself from some of the discipline you had to do when you're writing nonfiction. But also, you seem like the kind of person who thrives under some limitations and under some framework, right? So how different was it when you switched to something that was fictional but still f- historical? Well, I, I would argue that, that fiction is a whole lot harder than, than narrative nonfiction because, um, you know, you, you are given the story. It's, it's, it's life. It's, it existed. It was the story. Um, you know, it, it happened. And all I have to do is find enough detail to make it come alive. Right? Writing fiction, um, I mean, it was, a real, it was a real treat for me. And it was very low pressure because the way... The way this came about was I, I was actually on a book uh, book tour for Thunderstruck, believe it or not, and I had a lot of downtime between between um, uh, book events, and and so I would I would um, I I just decided at one point that I was going to write a I was going to write a ghost story. I had I had no intention of of anything. I was just going to write a ghost story, but the 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 thing that was going to make it kind of unique was it was going to be. I kept thinking of it in my mind as a ghost story with footnotes it was going to be based on uh, as many real elements as possible things that i had learned in the course of working on thunderstruck about the occult the society of you know uh, psychical research and so forth um and, and i came across so much great stuff that i could not use in the book i thought okay i wonder if i can use this as the underpinning of a ghost story and that's how that came about now you know, Thunderstruck came out. I don't know when that came out, but 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 you know, I I worked on it off and on <clears throat> ever since until until last year, um, and it was it was a delight because I, there was no pressure. I didn't think anybody would ever read it. I mean, I gave it to my kids to read, and they loved it. They thought it was really scary. That was that was very encouraging to me. And then one day, you know, I went, I started thinking maybe I'll give it away to to readers um, uh, on, on my website. Um, and I actually redesigned my website with a plug-in that would allow me to to write stories that would actually look good on the, on the website. Um, and and then I started, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, I'll work toward that. And I was going to release it last Halloween, give it away. Um, but I was in a, a, a marketing meeting, of course, blended and vile, and we were all sitting around talking about whatever. And then I and I said, you know, you may you may want to just work this into your calculations that. I have this ghost story <clears throat> and I'm going to release it on my website. I'm going to give it away on my website on Halloween. And you would have thought I'd rolled a, a, a live hand grenade across the table. Everybody just froze. And it was like, give it away, give, give away. <laughs> and so, so they made me an offer to do this as a, as a, as a, as a, what's referred to as an audio original, which I thought was absolutely ideal because first of all it's too short to be a full-length novel it is a novella but too short to be a full-length novel but also it's sufficiently outside my 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 bailiwick that it wouldn't be perplexing for people if i came out with a full-blown novel i I, and you know i and it was on the same shelf as my narrative nonfiction works I, i didn't like the potential for confusion but an audio original and especially uh for a ghost story i mean ghost story Ghost stories are, are, are I, I do firmly believe that ghost stories are best told um, aloud, um, you know, especially, you know, sitting by and you can if you can listen to them in the dark if you want to, you know, put on your put on your Bluetooth earphones, turn off all the lights and listen to a ghost story. It doesn't get better than that, you know. So anyway, that's how that came about. But the best thing, the most liberating thing about this was being able to actually write dialogue to make up dialogue was huge fun. 
Yeah, it, and there's a lot of dialogue. It, how yeah. much of that comes from history? Was, was there a lot of, like William James, for example, as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, I wonder how much of this is actually Eric Larson and how much of this is taken from things William James wrote or said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, all the dialogue is, is me, but there are references, there are elements of things that, that, that William James did actually say that, that I, I worked into some of the more... Um, you know, like when, when he was more in a, in, in my story, when William James is in more of a sort of a uh, an explanatory mode, um, I, I, little elements of his of, of his actual writings really did did seep in. Yeah, the, he has the most fascinating line I think in the in the book or in the in the audio original, which uh, is he says. While the existence of ghosts has yet to be proven, the existence of a self that needs ghosts to exist, as far as I'm concerned, that has been proven beyond any challenge. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? And, it's, and to me, <clears throat> to me, that is absolutely true. So true. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but you know, do I believe in ghosts? No, um, not really. Um, but would I like it if there were ghosts? Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, seriously, I mean, I, 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 now, now I say I don't believe in ghosts, but you know, part of me, part of me, sort of does. That is to say, part of me, part of me acknowledges that we don't know everything about how the world operates. We don't know everything about, you know, the bizarre moments that 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 we experience. You know, uh, you know, every day. I mean, look. Case in point, yesterday, um, you know, randomly, I I, I was grabbing a drink of water and just started thinking to myself, gosh, I should call my friend Glenn, my high school friend Glenn. And I am not kidding. I looked at my phone five minutes later and there was a record that he had just called. It was so bizarre. Now, you know, I mean, that's that's simple, you know, physics and synchronicity and it was probably the appropriate time between the last call and this call. But on the other hand, so I'm a sucker, by the way, for a good ghost story. I am a total sucker for a good ghost story. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with author Eric Larson about his latest work, a ghost story called No One Goes Alone, which is an audible exclusive. Join the conversation on social media. Call in with what issues on your mind in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, and we may play it on an upcoming show. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody is. and I think it has kind of a, the, the concept that the William James, James line has it applies in kind of a broader sense to our general moment, uh, or maybe maybe it's not a particular moment. Maybe it's just people and culture in general. But that, especially when I think about we're in what's called the post-truth era, it seems relevant yeah. to explore the distance between what is observably true and what people choose to believe anyway, and that logic is not necessarily the answer to solving why there's that dissonance, right? Right, right. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting that it just sort of popped into my head that, you know, <clears throat> like today, yes, it's sort of the post-truth era, people believe things that they have, they have no basis to believe. And they, they actually sometimes apparently seem to go out and seek those, those things. And, and I wonder if that isn't the, the, the 21st century analog to the late 19th century's obsession with the occult. You know, um, uh, back in back in the 19th century, the, the, the you know it wasn't just you know William James. Well, just I mean William James was exploring it because it was a, a phenomenon that had really really taken hold in Britain and in America. <clears throat> but you know there was this quest um, to, to 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 seek the the unknown, the spiritual, uh, and now. It's not uh, quite the same thing, but people are, are 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 questing after after bizarre truths that that satisfy something in 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 their yearning. Um, and I have no idea what that is. I mean, you know, I don't I don't I can't even I can't even imagine how somebody today can come to believe that a particular pizza parlor in Washington D.C. is a den of pedophiles, um, you know, created by Hillary Clinton and company. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that it'd be cool if ghosts exist. This seems a lot scarier than the concept of ghosts. <laughs> I know, but but something about people today needs for that to to exist, or at least for them to imagine that it exists. That's the really creepy thing. Was that that wasn't anything that you were trying to comment on when you wrote a book that came out in the middle of all of you know? Like, I'm sure, <laughs> you don't think that was even like feeding your subconscious as you come up with these characters? No, 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 no. Actually, no. You know, yeah. You know, what, what's funny? What's funny about books is that <clears throat> that that 
Yeah, I, I never, I, I, I made it a point a, a long time ago that, that I would never try to gear a book, <clears throat> to do a book, um, to, to, to address a particular contemporary situation. For one reason, um, you know, the, the, the odds are that whatever that contemporary situation was, it was going to pass, you know, in due time and, and probably before the, the, the book came out. But I have found time and time again that when I do a book, um, suddenly the, the, the world seems to kind of wrench along in such a way that the book suddenly has a new resonance. You know, um, a case in point, Splendid and Vile, <clears throat> that came out in, uh, in, uh, the, the, in, in February of 2020, you know, the first uh, when the pandemic um, uh, was just a, sort of percolating. And I was in mid-book tour when the, the the whole thing came to a screaming halt and I flew home and, you know, that was it. You know, the pandemic had, had cut off my book tour halfway through. And I thought, oh, man, this is this is over. This is my book is going to be dead. Then the weirdest thing happened. People came to the book uh, out of a yearning for for the leadership that we weren't getting. Uh, at the time, they came to the book because here was this guy Churchill, this 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 monument to defiance, emboldening the British people, and readers seemed to to find solace in in that story. I found that amazing because it is, after all, a book about mass murder, carnage, and so forth. But you know, um, people find solace in, in all, all kinds of different things, and. I guess, and and my book happened to be happened to be it at least for for a significant period of time. Yeah, it's interesting as well in the sense of what truths people want to believe, whether they're observably true or not, and the kind of things we want to believe or look for, uh, whether it's in reality or in books or whatever it might be. But you know, there's there's this idea that we sort of like want to believe that things are getting better, that democracy is permanently secure in America, that the ugly history of a lot of the 20th century won't repeat itself because we've just come so far. And I don't know, it, it's interesting to look at that. Uh, as maybe like if we had sort of like there's the the ambition on there's good and bad ambition there's sort of maybe good and bad truths that are not observably true that people gravitate toward um, yeah yeah but I mean I, I don't know and then to see sort of some of these things um, get divorced a little bit from like our idea of fact our idea of what it means for something to be true history or sort of like partisan history as also we've had nonfiction be kind of absorbed into different modes uh, where nonfiction is kind of everywhere now in a way I don't think it was before right like memoirs true crime podcasts it's kind of everywhere but I don't know that our ability to sort of comprehend it, to learn from it, uh, is what it was before. Like, it seems like it's it's shifting where nonfiction and truth and entertainment are all kind of jumbled together into this sort of content that sometimes can be good and sometimes can be scary, like QAnon. Yeah, well, well there, well, there is this uh, this unfortunate convergence, I think, between between nonfiction and fiction, um, often sometimes sometimes just just simply inadvertent in the course of trying to trying to tell a good story, and this is why I, you know as I mentioned earlier why why I think if anything I'm I'm getting more and more disciplined to kind of to kind of kind of make sure that I'm I don't fall into that trap or get lumped into that 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 category. But you know you think about things like. I mean, even on a simple level, for example, my wife and I are really into a, a, a limited series, um, you know, the Queer Eye series. You know, there's five guys go around trying to trying to help, you know, you know, lonesome guys get a life, you know. And 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 and, um, and the thing is, the thing is, you know, it's, it, the artifice is that it takes place in the course of a week. But you realize that. You know, this can't take place in a week. And you always forget that, you know, bottom line, that, that while these things are you know, supposedly happening, this is a real, real thing that's happening and whatever. You, you forget that there is on the other side of that lens, there's a camera crew, you know, <laughs> filming this whole thing. And, and they're in this, this, this supposedly intimate moment is actually being filmed by five guys, you know, with, with a with a with a furry microphone and a gigantic lens. So. So there, there is this there is this inevitable convergence of 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 of, of, of reality and, and and fiction. You know, reality TV being the the, the sine qua non of, of 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 that phenomenon. The danger comes when it starts to leak into uh, leach into other other realms. Like if you get a 
uh, writer of narrative nonfiction. And there still are people like this, um, uh, unfortunately, who believe in creating composite characters to tell a, a real life story or, or use made up dialogue and so forth. When you start getting into that, then that's, that's, the, that's the, 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 the true red flag zone. And so it sounds like you are not going to fully embrace fiction then going forward. Are we going to get another nonfiction history book? Well, again, I, I, I didn't say that I wasn't going to embrace <laughs> fiction, you know. I mean, I, I've learned time and time again, nev, never, never say never. The minute I say I'm, I'm never doing something, the next thing I know, uh, you know, shoot me, I'm doing it, you know. <laughs> so, so, so the thing about, thing about fiction is, I mean, I, I really, I really um, enjoyed this project. I don't. I don't need the pressure of being a novelist. I mean, you know, I, I, I realized in the course of that, that fictional, that, that doing that, that audio original, like I said, that fiction is a lot tougher than nonfiction. And, and, and you really, it's your entire, it's your creative soul that gets hung out there. Um, uh, it's not the story, the underlying story that I managed to tell. Well, it's, it's, you create the whole thing from, from nothing, and and so it's really you. It's your 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 soul that's on on display, um, and that's a that's a whole order of well, let's go back to anxiety, you know. But but you know if if I mean you know, I, I, I I am working on something also a novella that maybe I will issue again as an audio original that's very very different, um, and I'm ha- having a really good time doing it. But, you know, um, uh, that kind of thing I, I, I get. I mean, it's, it's not something that I am forced to do to make a living. Um, and if I like it, I'll, I'll do something with it. If I don't, I won't. But in the meantime, yes, I have embarked on my next fully nonfiction story. And if I told you what it was, you, you would probably commit me to an, an insane asylum. <laughs> That's a great tease. Uh, <laughs> I think it's probably a good place for us to end. We got a nice tease for what people can look for, whether they've read your books, maybe they have more understanding of some of what went into it. If they haven't, they have a nice teaser for some of the the classics yeah. that you've got out there already. So it's been great to talk to you, Eric. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, uh, thank thank you very much. And you know, I, I, I now I realize even more what I missed by not being able to come there and, and do that live uh, event. I mean, maybe next time, right? I hope so. That'd be amazing. <clears throat> thank you. Yeah. Man. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.